How can this running back that runs, you know, a 4-4-40, you know, a four-flat pro agility, getting tackled in the backfield by, you know, opponents, it just doesn't make sense. So it kind of led me to Sean and led me to the idea that, well, it's he, he's not a very good decision maker. When you decouple a, a movement or an action, so you take away the perception and the intention from the movement outcome or the action, you're not doing any good. So... 40 years, 50 years of research have pointed towards this practice of skill or, or excuse me, technique without some sort of perception. It doesn't work and it does not retrain or, or retain or transfer to the sport of the, of the athlete. We perceive to act and we, we act to perceived, right? So the two are always connected to each other. And, and in response to that is, is we perceive the specifying information within the environment that dictates how we're going to move. That was a snippet from each of our speakers in the special roundtable edition of the Just Fly Performance Podcast, featuring Scott Sawasser, Michael Zwiefel, and Sean Mishka. They're talking about the need for the industry to move beyond the paradigm of canned agility drills and into reactive decision-making and having an understanding of perception and how athletes will actually move and play on the field. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Simply Faster. Simply Faster is an online athletic performance technology shop distributing items such as the free lap timing system, gym aware, K-Box, 1080 Sprint, and the Speed Mat. I've gotten many of these items from Simply Faster and can confidently say that they make today's best training technology available to everybody. The free lap timing system has revolutionized both my practices and my athlete assessments allowing me to look at the 10-meter fly capability of dozens of athletes in a matter of seconds. It is wireless, compact, portable, and incredibly versatile. The K-Box and 1080 Sprint are fantastic tools for any coach looking to build speed, agility, and implement training scenarios that go beyond the traditional weight room. The 1080 Sprint is being used by great coaches training some of the fastest sprinters in the world, and it truly represents high-performance speed training. I can personally attest that Simply Faster's customer service is second to none, Christopher at Simply Faster responds quickly to queries, and anyone who makes a purchase from Simply Faster is in good hands. If you want to acquire some of the best high-tech training equipment available, stop by simplyfaster.com. That's simply with an I, faster.com. They are the future of coaching technology. Welcome to episode 76 of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Joel Smith, and as I mentioned just a little bit ago, we have an awesome roundtable episode for you today on redefining agility and sport movement. And the thing with agility is, and I, it's, it's such an interesting thing. You see videos from these facilities. You got kids doing touch this cone, touch that cone, do run this pattern, or, or even in a lot of mainline strength and conditioning. And the question is, is this stuff really getting anyone more agile on the field of play? Is this really transferring? Is this really making anyone more athletic? And as, as a young athlete myself, and I did all the plyometric programs, and I saw myself jump higher, I did the sprint programs, and I got faster. And then as I got a little bit older, I was buying books on the topic, and I would see an agility program, like an agility course, like on a basketball lane. And, and I went out, and I would try it, and I would think to myself, huh, like, I just didn't feel very 
like compared to other training or compared to actually playing in a game, I really didn't feel like that did anything. <laughs> I kind of left it at that. And then I went kind of throughout my career as a track coach and a strength coach. And I, I, I never really catered or included the, the canned cone agility drills in the training because I just never felt like it did much for me as an athlete. And obviously that's how all of us coaches kind of at least initially get to, to our programming. And, and I've tried to get away from that a little bit over the years in terms of not obviously using myself as the main uh as what i feel is the main indicator of what the training should be however canned agility and actual on-field reactiveness are two different things and our expert panel today is going to dig into that and discuss better alternatives for movement and performance than what the canned stuff that we typically see. And so the three experts we have are Sean Mishka. He is a movement specialist, works with many NFL athletes. He has a massive background in physical preparation as well as just the knowledge of motor learning and the facets that go into movement and winning and making the play on the field. Scott Sawwasser is our second guest. He is the director of speed and power at Texas Tech University. He was the original guest on the Just Fly Performance podcast, also appeared not too long ago, and he has written some amazing articles on speed development, uh, resisted sp- heavy resisted sprinting, but he's not just the speed guy. Scott has some amazing insight and ideas when it comes to uh, situations and drills where athletes can be re- more reactive in a realistic and on-field manner. And last but not least is Michael Zwiefel. Michael has written some awesome articles for Just Fly Sports, and this is his first appearance on the podcast. And Michael, again, he isn't just a speed guy. He has awesome insight on reactive athletic movement. If you are familiar with his social media account, Twitter, he's always very transparent, posting the things he's doing with his athletes, using using humans to be the reactive stimuli for other athletes. And like his company says, building better athletes, he's trying to make better athletes. And each of these three has their own distinct population with Sean, with the pro level, Scott, college athletes, and Michael Zwiefel with the high school, largely the high school and middle school crowds. So you're going to see three applications and ideas with three different populations. So I think there's someone for everybody in this podcast. These guys killed it. I learned so much because this is not my wheelhouse. Like I said, I kind of stopped when I did the 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 cone drill or the the lane drill and said this is dumb and and I I left it there and these guys have just ignited my interest in this topic so much if you're involved with coaching athletes who have a reactive component whatsoever any team sport athlete you're going to love this Uh, we're going to talk about uh, basically is there any value in canned agility and movement type training versus reactive and then how to get practical and what these guys are doing so let's get on to episode 76 of the just fly performance podcast Hey everyone out there, welcome to a special edition of the Just Fly Performance Podcast. Uh, I have three awesome uh, guests on the line today in, I guess, alphabetical order. We got uh, uh, Sean Mishka, Scott Sawasser, and Michael Zweifel. And uh, so before we get kicked off today with the episode, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourself. And uh, Sean, why don't you go first and uh, just kind of talk a little bit about uh, where you've been and kind of where you're going now in the industry. Yeah, thanks, Joel, and thanks for having me here. It's, it's a real pleasure. It's something that, obviously, as we talked about off-air, uh, that uh, is a pleasure of mine because I've been following your work and, and what you've been doing with the podcast here for quite some time, and, and it's an honor to be on with these two gentlemen that, I, obviously, I respect and, and speak to quite frequently um, as well, maybe more frequently than either one of them would desire. <laughs> so it's an honor to be here, and I'm excited to do so. 
Uh, right now, I operate uh, as a sport movement skill acquisition coach, uh, as a personal performance advisor for National Football League players. Uh, I've been doing that now almost 10 years. This is my 10th year, and I've had uh, 85 players who uh, sort of either consult with me or, or look to me for advising uh, in their movement skill acquisition processes and, and other aspects of their performance as well. So I've been doing that now almost a decade here. Uh, obviously, I also uh, am highly involved in, in kind of creating content and opening things up here, hopefully as much as we can in regards to this whole uh, niche of sport movement skill acquisition. So I often uh, speak about these topics and ideas. I run a blog, obviously oriented towards uh, football sport movement, uh, named Football Beyond the Stats, uh, as well as then operate uh, a content development site oriented around movement skill acquisition called uh, Movement Mastery at OptimizeMovement.com. So those are kind of my my titles as well as my cheap plugs. And in the direction that I'm going is is you'll probably hear a whole heck of a lot of throughout the course of my answers. But it's all about to me trying to find ways to understand uh, sport movement problems and sport movement skill acquisition more fully, more deeply, and uh, to have greater impact to sports of all kinds, from American football to tennis, as we talked about off air, to um, track and field, to even everything in between. So um, I kind of just gave you the, the long-winded answer, but uh, in any event, I'm, I'm really excited to be here, and hopefully I'm able to contribute some ideas towards uh, where I kind of exist within this sport movement's uh, skill acquisition ecosystem at the moment. I'm Scott Salwasser. I'm the director of speed and power development at Texas Tech University. Uh, I'm sure Sean will talk about the OG Bernstein. Um, I'm the OG of Just Fly Sports. I was the very first podcast. Uh, uh, <laughs> number one, baby. Num number one. And uh, this is my third time back, and it's always a pleasure, Joel. Uh, obviously, prior to Texas Tech, I was at the University of California for four years where I worked alongside you, Joel. Prior to that, I was at Sparta Performance Science, uh, Louisiana Lafayette University, Sacramento State University, and uh, two separate stints with the Oakland Raiders. And uh, that's basically my background. I'm hoping that Sean doesn't give away all of our secrets on this podcast because right now I have a nice competitive advantage and uh, so hopefully we can keep, you know, just 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 kind of give them a little bit and, and, you know, keep the rest of it for ourselves. Yeah, you got to hide a little bit. <laughs> There's yeah, some robustness. Uh, I'm sure you can uh, some sort of implications you can make on that, too. So I, last one here, Michael Zwiefel. I'm the, I'll keep it short and sweet. I'm the owner of Building Better Athletes. Um, and I also coach five college teams. So I kind of have my foot in both the public and private sector. Uh, I think what I'll come from today is. You know, from compared to uh, Sean and Scott, they're working with, I think, more elite level athletes. I'm working with more kind of the, the high school age, middle school age athlete. And then for my college guys, it's, you know, they're Division three level NAIA. So um, for my answers today, I'll be answering from more of a, I'd say, a lower qualification level than Sean and Scott. So that's just for the listener's background of, in terms of where I'm coming from, um, the population I work with. Yeah, hey, it's great to have all you guys, and I, I like that there's a range of athletes because the people listening to the show, obviously, there's going to be a range of people, a range of athletes that every coach and even the athletes tuning in are, are listening to. So I'm really thrilled to have each and every one of you guys on the show. This is awesome for me, uh, and uh, so let's kick it off. Uh, the first question or topic of interest, and I'm sure we can branch out into a lot of others, is the value of teaching sport movements such as acceleration, deceleration, change of direction, what have you, 
uh, absent of sport, actual sports stimuli. So at what point does that kind of become moot or how do we approach that uh, in each of your populations, the populations you guys are working with? Yeah, and I don't know if anyone wants me to actually take any of these answers first, because hopefully <laughs> I, I don't get on too many rants and raves and tangents. We may have to have a rule. Um, we have to have a rule. If, we'll have a rule after 30 if, minutes, maybe. It depends. Yeah, you might want to <laughs> cut me off at a certain point. And I already, you know, for the listeners out there, I already gave my dudes, uh, both Michael and Scott, the heads up to cut me off at any time. And I'm sure that will be the pleasure and benefit of many out there. Um, for me, Joel, and, and, and the rest of those out there, I, I used to really think that there was sort of this step-by-step uh, -step model towards skill acquisition, if you will, where one had to go from closed to open and from pre-planned to more chaotic and, and had to sort of separate or isolate um, some of those respective movement patterns and those techni the technical execution that was involved in producing those movement patterns, such as acceleration, deceleration, change of direction mechanics, what have you. Um, over time, uh, and it seems to be this constant, evolving, ever dynamic uh, cycle for me to where I get less and less of that mindset. And what I mean by that is I've begun to gravitate towards spending uh, more time uh, trying to really couple the task and the technical execution within that respective task as part of a skill. And for me, when we look at sport, uh, you know, many people have heard me say it before that I kind of live and breathe by the old uh, Dr. Mel Siff and Dr. Yuri Verkoshansky quote that says, sport is nothing but a problem solving activity where movements are used to produce a necessary solution. Uh, I've started to look at that movement solution in a really multi-level, integrated fashion uh, of what I refer to often as the three Bs of movement skills. So athletes' perceptions or their behaviors, uh, the athletes' intentions and the cognitive decision-making that goes along with that, or the brain, and then finally the biomechanics and, and the athlete's action. So this becomes this constant cyclical revolving door, if you will, uh, that has circular causality to it. And I have now started to always attempt to uh, couple the perception and the action, as well as the technique and the skill, or the individual in the environment and the task is closely coupled together at that level that I possibly can. And that's really how I aim to evolve skill acquisition for my respective individuals. And of course, I work with uh, NFL athletes, that doesn't mean that they're the most masterful movers when they get to me. Oftentimes, they just end up being the world's best compensators. So people often point the finger and say, well, you don't have to develop the athlete from the ground up and the ground zero. But there's still plenty of movement compensations that could be deemed dysfunctional in that population. But the more I start to tie into uh, this perception-action coupling and the development and evolution of skill in that way, where I attempt to couple that at all times, the more I see that not only being retained uh, from our training sessions day to day, but also more specifically transferred and, and actualized and stabilized in the sport environment. So I know I kind of went off on a couple different directions there, and, and hopefully I set some things on a tee for, for my two dudes there to, to go off of as well. I think for me, you know, in terms of teaching um, sports skill without the stimulus, for football, the biggest stimulus is other bodies, your, your opponent's body. There's 22 guys on the field and, and only one football. So the stimulus that most of them are interacting with are actually other human beings moving in that environment. So, so I would say you don't need 
football, football, the football itself or football specific plays to give them an off- authentic stimuli because a lot of times they're working against someone else. Um, and, and that's their primary stimulus. So if you look at a football field, um, there's a lot of just one-on-one battles going on movement-wise all across the field. And then, of course, I'm sure Sean later will talk about shared affordances and, and you know, two-on-three and three-on-five, et cetera. But, but really, it, there's a lot of one-on-one battles going on where one guy has an opponent and it, it, irregardless of what the ball is doing. Um, and kind of what led me to go down this rabbit hole, so to speak, is I've always prided myself as an expert biomechanist. All my guys, mo- you know, moved well, looked, you know, in, in, in closed circumstances, timed well, good 40 times, good pro agilities, timed fast, and then went out and played slow. And I'm like, what the hell is going on here? How can this running back that runs, you know, a 4 4 you know, a four flat pro agility getting tackled in the backfield by, you know, opponents. It just doesn't make sense. So it kind of led me to Sean and led me to the idea that, well, it's he, he's not a very good decision maker. So basically, Sean touched on the three B's, the, the brain, the behavior and the biomechanics. We were great at one B. We were great biomechanically, poor perceivers and poor decision makers. So at this point, I think that's the next evolution. All of these guys have great motor output and, you know, are good biomechanically. But as soon as I can get them to react to the stimuli that we're talking about, which is other moving bodies um, and make decisions more effectively and more rapidly, I think that's that's really what we're looking for here. Yeah, I went down the same path as Scott where it would – same thing, like a biomechanist viewpoint. We spend a lot of time in the technique, working on footwork, uh, body angles, body positioning, and then also when it got to an open environment, it all went to hell. They, they didn't retain any of that. And at that same time, probably about four or five years ago, it's getting more into more and more in the research. And one thing that's it's nice in the past, say, year, we've been seeing more and more receptiveness to kind of open reactive agility. And I hate that term, reactive agility, because as, if anybody understands the definition of agility right now, the current accepted definition is in response to a stimulus. When you say reactive agility, it's actually redundant. But anyways, it's nice that it's, it's been received a lot better here in the last year. But the, the truth is, for 40, 50 years, uh, researchers from, from Bernstein to Noel to Gibson to more recently in Davids have all basically come back to the same conclusion. No matter what they study, they've been different, you know, from constraints approach to affordances to uh, ecological psychology. They've all come to the same point, and it's this. When you decouple a, a movement or an action, so you take away the perception and the intention from the movement outcome or the action, you're not doing any good. So 40 years, 50 years of research have pointed towards this practice of skill or, or excuse me, technique without some sort of perception. It doesn't work, and it does not retrain or, or retain or transfer to the sport of the, of the athlete. And so just because an athlete exhibits technique in a closed environment or closed drill does not mean that technique will transfer to another environment or another skill. If there's a completely different environment and task, the technique is going to be different. And then a dirty secret of our, our field is that we, we all kind of come from a biomechanist kind of background, but there is no such thing as perfect or ideal uh, agility technique. Everyone's going to be different because our anthropometrics are different. And also we perceive every problem differently 
Therefore, our motor response or our, our kinematics will be different. And that's a tough thing for people to realize, but I think we're getting better and better at it. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, I love it. That's awesome. I, I and uh, just from the the bit that I know, I'm, I'm it's awesome listening to the different answers and, and what you guys are saying. Uh, so my my quick follow up to you guys is is one that makes me Michael that makes me think a little bit about something I read in Game Speed, where it's like even like a five oh five, just running it just for the sake of the optimal time, you're gonna have different mechanics than if you were changing direction on the field. Like it's it's a totally it's a different situation. And so my question uh, for for each of you guys, and maybe this maybe this being a little bit more into that nuts and bolts section, but like. Is there any place for canned chain move like like Sean? You mentioned like someone might not be a great mover. Is there a place where you gonna take them and say you know put move like this, put your foot here uh, outside of reaction? Is there a place for that, and when might you use it? If so, um, for me personally, again, I'm I'm always looking at that connection between problem and solution, and and uh, I attempt to at all times try to look to see at first how that athlete is currently solving uh, sort of the breadth of problems, you know, uh, in a representative task uh, within a certain bandwidth of that task and the problem that the athlete exists within, the specifying information becomes powerful. The, the specifying information will guide how that individual will go to solve the problems, again, at that 3B level, from the, the sensory and perceptual level to the cognitive decision-making to the biomechanics. It all is integrated at all times. And so for us to isolate that technical execution specifically outside of where the skill has to be um, organized from, I think is really a, a lost cause, at least for me. And I used to spend a lot of time, much like both Scott and Michael did, uh, you know, kind of going down that biomechanical path because I was a biomechanics junkie at heart, just like the other two. And just like so many across our profession are, but really what it comes down to is being able to help that individual attach themselves and fit within that respective problem and, and find the ways to connect to it. So we see some of those dynamical systems or ecological dynamics ideas, such as attunement and affordances for action and, and the adjustment of one's movement solutions in response to the ever-changing environment. And of course, that's truly mastery. That's truly dexterity. Finding the right solution to the right condition and matching it. Um, coordination and control stem from that, that matching and attunement. And, and so for me, um, it, it really becomes a lost cause and a moot point to address technical execution independent of. There are other things that we can do personally to enhance kinesthetic sense and awareness of, body, of one's body and time and space, I believe, when they're being placed and coupled together with the problem. And so that problem and solution connection, you know, my man Bernstein once said, you know, no phenomenon can be understood without carefully considering how it emerged. And I think when we really start to think about that is how that movement solution is emerging is based on that dynamical system that that athlete exists within, you know, between the task and the environment and between themselves and their own personal constraints. And, and by working independently with just biomechanics and just that personal constraints, I don't think we give them uh, the relevance and help them couple or connect to the problem very well. So I, I used to do a lot of it, Joel. And, uh, you know, even when 
both uh, my, Michael and myself, as well as many across the profession, and, and I started chatting, I took a lot of time to try and do that, which what Scott mentioned is make my guys look perfect in their movement solutions. And they would have it in a practice or a training setting when they knew what they were rehearsing. They were able to hit certain technical KPIs, but then they went out into the field to play and the problem got chaotic and anxiety and pressure and fatigue entered the mix and all things went to hell. And uh, the more we can exist within that ecosystem, that dynamical system, and the more we can shape the movement skill in that environment, performing that ever-changing task, I think the quicker we get to our end result goal, which is optimizing the movement solution and putting the athlete in ownership and control of it. Mm -hmm. I think uh, a lot of the tendency towards closed drills, and Sean and I had a conversation about this the other day, is because most coaches are control freaks. And what we like about controlled drills is because we know exactly what it's going to look like. We know exactly what it's going to look like. We know exactly what we should say. Everything's nice and neat. And then we go from there, right? And so uh, more of an open environment uh, intimidates a lot of coaches because, number one, they're, they're, they don't know what it's going to look like. And number two, they don't really know what to say. Um, so they think that it's just going to be a free-for-all out there. And uh, initially, when I started uh, making a move into more res uh, of a, of a re representative learning uh, type scheme, uh, I, I was basically doing uh, the best job I could to take this authentic open environment and close it by telling the athletes how they should respond to the stimuli that was supposed to be unpredictable but then i was telling the other guy what he should do too so i was basically bastardizing it you know and 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 i think the thing that's important to realize is that we do have control over it as sean and i talked about the other day by manipulating the constraints and once i realized i don't have to tell the guys what to do if i want to elicit a certain response i just change the dynamics of the drill either the organization of the drill or the rules of the drill, the spacing of the drill. Um, you know, and even some of my athletes picked up on it the other, the other day when I make, when I made the workspace bigger, they covered more ground. When I made the workspace tighter, they were like, man, this feels like this feels so much quicker. Like I don't have as much time to react. I'm like, yeah, well, I mean, that's by design, you know? So rather than me saying, Oh, you should move quicker or, Oh, you got to cover ground. You know, you really become sort of a puppet master and it's really more fulfilling because you're still in control, but the athletes are coming to uh, these realizations and, and these improvements um, kind of on their own. You're guiding them rather than forcing them to do something and to kind of circle back around, you know, in terms of is there a time for, for a closed environment? Uh, again, it's, it's what problem are you solving, you know? Um, at the end, at the NFL Combine, there are closed drills that they have to time. And I know my man Sean is going to tell me that if I need more than a couple weeks to get him to run the pro shuttle correctly, you know, I must be doing something wrong. But you know, certainly my pro day guys or my combine guys, yeah, we're going to obviously work on um, those closed drills. But at that point in time, that's the problem that they have to solve. Sports is never like that. So I think the more you can put them in those situations, and again. Uh, create an environment that elicits the response you want, I, I think the better. 
Yeah, yeah. I was going to say that reminds me of like Brazilian futsal. It's small, you know, small sided games naturally, and no one had to tell those guys where to put their feet and what to, you know, like they're not sitting there running 505s. And so, anyways, I, I like that stuff. Uh, so, Mike, Michael. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of reiterate what everyone said, I, I personally don't find much value in most closed skills or, you know, uh, these uh, technical type of models because, again, if there is not some sort of perception, you, you cannot guarantee that that technique will stick once they get into a game. That's the biggest thing. So you can work on these biomechanical uh, techniques. You can work on these closed skills. But at the end of the day, there's no guarantee that any of that will actually connect to them in an open environment. So it's just, to me, it's a waste of time if you're not including some sort of perception. So there has to be some sort of percep perception in order for a technique to have some sort of relevancy or representative towards the, the actual uh, sport. Now, what I think what people get confused is that when they think about actual agility, they think it's got to be super chaotic, and it's just it's just organized. It's just it's nuts. The reality is, you can make some drills, and you can, you can scale them down, but they can still involve some sort of perceptual or cognitive demand. And now you're at least bridging them closer to the actual demands of sport. So it's not like agility has to be overly chaotic, and it's just it's just a mad chaos. You can you can construct some drills or just some skills, if you would, which Sean would say that are still open and reactive. They involve perception. They involve co a cognitive function, but they're still scaled down where you can really manipulate the, the technique, if you would, if they need to improve upon that. So that's, that's my take on that. Uh, I, I love that stuff. I, I mean, that's, uh, I, I definitely think that uh, just listening to you guys, it's, it's almost like we've taken what athletes do naturally. And it's like what you said, Scott, you're the puppet master. Like how, how do we harness it? How do we allow what is in the athlete to, to come out and, and to stick? And I think that's, that's a great point too, is it's, it's like we do as coaches, what cuts the check, right? And if what cuts the check is people expect us to do canned agility drills and someone says they got better at something, well, oh, they must be a better athlete and I got my money's worth. But <laughs> at the end of the day, it's, uh, it's what wins the game and what makes you better. I, uh, what, um, so, and, and moving into the next one and, and I, and I want to get practical too, after this question, but, uh, thoughts on, uh, and we talked a little bit about this in the before, but thoughts on non-specific stimuli. So, uh, flashing lights, stuff that is not, it's not the player, you know, it's a light, it's something else. Uh, what do you guys, what's your thoughts on something like that? Uh, how about I'll start and then you guys can roast me and, and <laughs> good idea. Good Perfect. <laughs> I, in a certain degree, I don't mind them maybe as much as Scott and Sean will go into. Now the price, absolutely not. $4,000 for a flashing light system. I, I can never vouch for that, but I do think there is a place and again, my population, middle school, high school athletes, where I think a simplified perception or a simplified cognitive demand has a place. So colored cones or numbered cones, where again, it's not closed, it's not you know preset. There is a little bit of cognitive demand there. I do think there's a, a time and place for some <clears throat> activities like that. Um, flashing lights, I, you know, it comes to my mind. I have a good buddy who works a lot of one-on-one -on -one situations, and he has uh, really bad hips, and he just can't move anymore. So when he's in an odd number situation, sometimes that's the best thing he has is those those flashing lights because he just can't move and be a partner to that athlete. No, I'm not saying that's the, the perfect thing, but I think in certain cases and situations, um, it can be a useful tool. But the problem I see is this. People use that as the end game. And instead of using that as a bridge to get into the more specific uh, stimuli, the more specific perception, they stop there. And that is a problem. So for me, a $4,000 price tag to have something that I would deem more as a bridging activity than rather than 
actually get him to uh, you know more of a representative uh, skill set, mm-hmm. I wouldn't buy him. But I do think for like colored cones, numbered cones, pointing left, and they, they have to go right, that kind of stuff. I, I see a spot time and place for those uh, things. Um, but Sean and Scott, go ahead and get him on uh, the roof. No, no I, I, I think, you know, I agree in a sense, you know, with one thing that I've kind of gravitated towards is making a, a, as much of the stimuli human uh, as possible. So, so, and again, you know, humans are free. I got a hundred of them out there. Right. And so like, I like to use human cones. So rather than a blinking light or a cone that says one, two or three, it's a human, you know, and rather than pointing because on the field, uh, no one's going to point and tell you where to go. You know, the coach is, but he's on the sideline. I am, I'm running down the sideline, pointing to the end zone for them to run to, but no one's pointing. I just have dudes lean or, or, you know, give some sort of lean or get on their heels or, or dictate that way. Um, uh, what, what response, um, should happen, you know, and, and that's still a very scaled down, very easy, very basic drill. It's not chaotic. Like Michael was saying, it doesn't always have to be chaotic. I mean, you, you still have basically stationary targets. So it's, it's still a very low progression, but, but it's free. And it's to me more of an authentic um, cue than, than blinking lights or, or than even someone pointing, you know? So anyway, that's my take. Yeah. And I'm, it's probably a good idea that you all kept me for last. Uh, you probably saw me over. I'm like itching while Michael's talking, you know? Uh, so, <laughs> um, you know, for me, as, as both my dudes will know what I'm about to kind of say here, uh, for me, we, we perceive to act and we, we act to perceived, right? So the two are always connected to each other. And, and in response to that is, is we perceive the specifying information within the environment that dictates how we're going to move. And when, when we really look at the specifying information, this is why representative environments are so powerful. Information I place a premium on and what that information source is, especially when we look at through a lens of, of ecological dynamics, we know that that information will constrain and invite and afford certain movement solutions. And a flipping light flipping off doesn't really afford and constrain and limit and invite certain movement solutions. It tells us go to red or go to blue or go to green. Now that's a really generalized perception action coupling that we can do that at a really base level. But I think if we spend too much time there, we're never really going to get the athlete attuned to the information that is going to specify what they should move, when they should move, and how they should move. And and when we talk about that chaotic environment and agility being chaotic, it becomes this spacing and timing relationship. You know, Scott and I talked about this on a call the other day where, where we rambled on and on about this, is this space and time relationship is our movement solution uh, KPI, if you will, or our key performance indicator. And, and these lights don't give us any information in regards to space and time that's going to resemble that, which what happens in the task of the representative environment. And, and so I would just warn anyone out there that's spending a significant amount of time there, believing and thinking that that's um, really addressing aspects of movement skill, uh, tunement and adaptation, uh, it will have its limits. And I think it really 
Um, we, we have to get to the point where we're using what Scott is using, and that's human stimuli. And, and Michael, I know you are as well, because I see your videos, and, you know, you and I have talked about this quite extensively as well. But um, maybe a time and a place, but there's very limited times and places, at least in my opinion, uh, for the use of flashing lights or the like, you know, things that would resemble stuff outside of the sport task. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Sure, I have a quick thought, and, and I'd like you guys to maybe follow up. Uh, so my, my thought, and I, I thought about this as Michael was talking, uh, and, and maybe I'm off base, but my thought is, and, and this is my little bit more my world in the the, the little bit non-chaotic sports, but a, a track start is does have elements of chaos. You're in track and field. You have the gun. You have competitors by the side of you. And, and I have always been a believer in a progression down to that block start, like learn to come out of a two-point stance, learn to come out of a three-point stance, and and learn those things before you have all the chaos of the full block start with people to the left and right of you. I've, I've felt like that's advantageous. It does seem that possibly a lower like a lower-level athlete uh, may have something to gain uh, through like I, maybe let's not even say the lights like something that's free like I like how Scott you said humans are free that's awesome like cones like something cheap selling colors and cheap um, do you guys have any thoughts on that is there like that there might be a, a, any sort of helpful progression for so, some athletes or lower level athletes and that that's what I use as a progression uh, again middle school high school age athletes um, it again you have multicolored cones and you'll, you'll yell at a color so they do have to have some sort of uh, recall of, of patterns or places on a field, which that has rel- relevancy to any game. No one have a, a certain spot in the field where they may have to go to if this happens or that happens. But again, my view is it's a, it's a simplified uh, perception of a simplified, um, you know, stimulus for the athlete that they have to do. <clears throat> and again, I use it as a bridge, but I always try to end with some sort of human stimulus. So, for me, it's one of those things that just it, it dumbs it down just a little bit. It's fun. It, it's 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 more of a cognitive challenge and maybe a, an actual a keen and on specific kinematics of an opponent. Uh, but I always try to get towards the human stimulus by the end of it. But it's just something that I use as a bridge, bridging activity, final thing. Kind of like you talked about, Joel, bridging from a, a two point to a three point to blocks. For me, that's in my in my uh, uh, progression. It's a bridge to the actual human stimulus. I think uh, for me, in terms of progression, <clears throat> so we've been talking about constraints, you know, well, c- constraint means to limit, right? And so the lowest, the, the lower levels of progression will restrict you to maybe less movement options, right? You're getting less information, ergo, you have less movement options. So to me, um, <clears throat> you know, a target that, is maybe stationary and is giving less information that the athlete has to process, though still human. And as I mentioned earlier, um, maybe gives a limited amount of information. If I lean right or left, you're interpreting that and maybe you're cutting right or left um, in response to me. However, there's only so many things that you can do to solve that problem, right? And I'm only giving you a very limited amount of information. Now, again, that's far from the actual sporting event. However, if you're talking about early level progression, that's an example of one that I've found success with. You're constraining what the stimuli is doing, and therefore you're constraining 
the amount of information and the amount of movement solutions that the the participant um, is able to use to solve the problem. And I think when you limit those two areas, it makes it a lot simpler. Um, and, and so that would be an example of a lower level progression than as you move up, more information, more movement options, more solutions possible, more complex. Well, and really what you're talking about there is obviously opening up degrees of freedom, right? Not only in the motor system and the respective movement uh, solutions that you may have available to you, but really at the multi-level of that solution formation, you know, at the behavioral and the brain level and opening up degrees of freedom there, uh, perceptually what you have to attune to and cognitively what decisions you have available to make. Uh, you know, sometimes when people hear me speak and maybe um, talk in uh, disgust towards some of these uh, ideas, whether it's, you know, lights and things of the like, or whether it's agility ladders or whether it's closed, canned, idealistic movement pattern rehearsal, they think that I'm on the very far extreme other end where I'm just throwing athletes to the wolves and it's just flipping chaos and, and they're all over the place making mistakes now. There, there is still progression, as both of you guys know, because you've kind of seen my stages in progression and you've seen some of the things that I do. But again, it kind of goes back to the lock that is the problem. So if we look at the movement problem and solution, and you guys have both kind of heard my, my analogy with this, the lock, we know that there's situations are going to selectively afford and invite and constrain certain strategies and patterns. And, and for us to be able to progress that, much like what you mentioned, Scott, I think is vital so it doesn't overwhelm the athlete. So we don't get this sort of perceptual and cognitive overload that pushes them over the edge. We still have to find the optimal challenge point for that respective mastery of athlete, right? And whatever we can do in order to make it more representative of even if we're at a lower level of perceptual and cognitive load because the athlete doesn't have that big of diverse and dexterous and degenerous uh, movement toolbox, then so be it. But the more closely we can get that lock to afford and invite and behave and act, like you even said, Scott, you know, like someone leaning a certain way, if someone's offense or defense will determine maybe what direction they will go when that person leans. So small nuances of that become specifying information that is really vital to the athlete. And so even when I'm stripping things back, Joel, much like what you mentioned, with taking that progression and, and maybe watering down that perceptual information that the athlete has to become attuned to, I still at all times try to keep the information from being watered down um, as well as much as I possibly can because that's what they're going to start to be able to coordinate their solutions around and then control and adapt their resp responses to as well. So um, great question, though, and I love and I'm fascinated. You probably saw me writing down over here because, as I mentioned to Scott, I had my notebook out. And while both of you were talking, I was writing things down. So uh, thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, I actually needed to turn a new page in my notebook because I was writing so much. I, I already well, I made the mistake of having a, a page that was probably had too much on it already. But at, keeping up with you guys, I should say. Uh, but uh, that that's good stuff. And ultimately, yeah, like it's you, the the competition you need to train specific it's almost like if you were to look at something else like plyometrics you need to train the contact time of what you're going to be competing in not the contact time you know i mean maybe you could use some low uh contact times to build up but uh, i was i was thinking um like michael i think it was your interview with ken clark it was something like compete rehearse compete or something like that like you always want to end with the human element no matter what basically like even if you use that stuff 
it, you have to end with the real thing kind of is that what you were kind of saying or there or, or yeah, that's, that's what i was saying is that i always want i'm always going to get to uh, uh the more specific representation of what athletes will see in the field and again i'm with so i'm again middle school high school age athletes and i could have 10 athletes in a session from 10 different sports so i don't have the luxury of having a single sport or a single type of athlete where you know i have a swimmer and a tennis player and a football player volleyball player they all have different perceptions and different stimuluses that are specific towards their game. But like, like Scott said, humans at the end of the day are probably the number one perception or stimulus that any athlete in any sport will go against. So I always try to get to some sort of human stimulus, even though it may not be as specific to their specific sport. We're always going to get to a human stimulus, whether it be one-on-one, two-on-one, two-on-two, three, whatever it may be. Because I think for me, again, the athletes that I've worked with and the success that we've had, what I've seen is just, is a progression from uh, just more of those general stimuli to kind of build up a little bit of that base and just capacity and then, you know, uh, transition towards an actual human stimulus. But I always want to end on an actual stim human stimulus because, like you said, that's where all the information is revealed about is their movement sticking, where are they breaking down at. Um, if, you, if you're not in that environment, then you're not getting really any good information or really true information from that in, um, athlete about how they're really moving. I think too, Joel, it's, it's, it's important to note as well, even for sports where there's maybe not human interaction in terms of you're guarding somebody or you're tackling somebody, sports like tennis or baseball, it's still human, it's still human cues. Your tennis athletes, yeah, they're looking at the ball, but the perception began with how the opposite athlete was moving towards the ball, how that athlete swung, their racket, that, that's where it started. And, and for baseball players, you know, watching, the, yeah, they watch the ball, but wh where does it start? At, at release point, they're watching the, the pitchers wind up in the release point. So it goes, it's not even just obviously basketball, football, where, yeah, obviously I'm guarding you. I know that I need to stay near you. Okay, that makes sense. But it always it's, it's always human information that even when you're not necessarily in contact with that human. And that's where I, that's a great point. And one thing I like to get to in terms of, because I don't have a specific sport, so you can work on a specific stimulus is, is, is including a, a multitude of different kind of games or skills where athletes have balls in their hand or they're kicking things. Because again, I have 10 athletes from diff 10 different sports. You know, if you're doing a mirror drill or you're trying to defend somebody, that is a, is a different stimulus, a different perception than say if I, I'm playing a, a, what I call a bucket ball. So you got like a basketball essentially with I got these little spike balls and there's like three balls going on the court. Now you're, now you're actually watching an athlete that has to open their hips or open their shoulders and, and throw a pass. So now you're actually getting a little bit more of a specific stimulus. So again, we think about mirror drills as like the end game for a lot of people for reactive agility. Just mirror drills, mirror drills. Well, get out some small sided games, get balls in their hands, balls in their feet because – or get a racket out because those things like, like Scott mentioned, even though it is a ball involved in those sports – at the end of the day, the athlete has to be able to perceive the hip position, shoulder position, feet position, all that kind of stuff. And so uh, getting out different implements for the athlete to manipulate or to use within a, a small-sided game, I think can be very beneficial as well. Cool. Yeah, I've I actually, think you oh, sorry, go mentioned ahead. something there before, uh, before you move on. I mean, I think the biggest thing there is, is trying to find the bandwidth of the problem, right, and understanding that, that information source and the athlete's connection and interaction with information, I think, is just key. So if, if we're going to 
to talk about our lights or some of these general, more general games, more perceptually dominant um, for the athlete and allowing us to attain skill. I, I think we are in when we talk about it in comparison to blocked or more constant movement rehearsal and things of the like. So I, I think the biggest thing there is just always trying to connect uh, information with movement and always trying to connect perception with action and, and doing less rote rehearsal in more open uh, so the individual has to be connected in a repetition without repetition type of fashion. Yeah, uh, that's yeah, that's awesome stuff. And yeah, it's just like bandwidth and, and scalability of each individual. It's 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 such good things to think about through all the different sports. And uh, I we're uh, we got a little bit of time left, but I really wanted to get to this point, which is uh, just give us like maybe take us inside five to twenty minutes of something that you might do in your practice. Uh, that would reflect what we've basically just been talking about. So I'd love, I want to use the last bit just to go into the anecdotes, the nuts and bolts. What do you do? How does it play out? Um, and then uh, what are we trying to get out of that? Who wants to tackle this one first? Scott, you want this one first, buddy? It basically, what most people would be familiar with, it looks like a cat and mouse format where one person's getting chased and one person's chasing not necessarily again a mirror drill where we're copying each other unless you play a position where your goal is to mirror somebody like offensive line potentially so usually there there's an aggressor and there's someone we're trying to instigate somebody but what i was saying was repetition without repetition so even though the premise may be the same i'm manipulating the angles that they're moving at i'm manipulating the positions that they're starting in i'm manipulating the space that they have to cover um, more workspace, less workspace. Uh, I may give them certain rules. I may change the rules. Um, I may, you know, any number of variations to, to the same premise will force them to adapt. Um, so the, in short, a cat and mouse type format, but uh, there's so many constraints and so many variations that you can manipulate and play pup, puppet master, as you said, that no repetition ever really looks the same. Yeah. And, Scott, that was, that was awesome. Uh, what I'll say is what we did on Monday for our, 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 my facility was exactly what, what Scott kind of explained. So we call it a goal line drill. And so there's an offense versus a defense player. Offense player has a ball. There's I'm trying to – it's hard to describe, but there's a, a goal line just like you would in football. And a, anywhere from five to eight yards on each side is a pylon, or we I put a bucket out. On each side of the offensive-defensive line – where the defense and offense are, are situated, I put up obstacles. So maybe like a, a pole on each side. So something that's in the way of each side of the, the, uh, the offensive defensive player. I said, go, the offensive player was trying to get the ball in one of the two pylons. And they had four seconds to get the ball into the pylon. Now, every time we, we altered a rep, so every time the offense went, they'd go back to defense and they'd come back, back to offense, we would change where the pylon was located. We would change how much time they had. We would change where those obstacles were set up on each side of the environment. We would So maybe one time the pylon was really easy to get to on the right side, but really tough on the left side. So now the defense is going, what do I have to do in this situation? Should I maybe favor to that left side and maybe make him go to the harder side? All that kind of stuff. Play. And then as a coach, my role was one, set up the environment. And then two, maybe just ask open questions and maybe just have them think or say, you know, what would you guys, what are you thinking right now, defensive player? What do you think an offensive player, et cetera? Just like in a game, there's many instances where you're in a corner of a, of a court or a field and, you know, you're in a, a sticky situation to go to the right. Going to the left might be easier and the defense may be 
pushing you towards that right just in the game. So the way, just like Scott explained, every rep we change the, the obstacles, we change where the uh, pylons were, we change how much time they actually had to get to those pylons, et cetera. We change starting positions. We change angles that they had to come in at. Those are all easy manipul uh, manipulations to make the game uh, have greater movement variability and greater movement adaptability. Uh, I just have two quick points before Sean uh, gets going because I'm, I'm hoping that he'll take the last 15 minutes to give <laughs> us all of his drills. Well, uh, one point that would be that with my quote-unquote cat-and-mouse drills where they're trying to get across the threshold, it's not, it's not tag. Because one, one thing that I've found with tag is that f football players and, and football players will try to tag their opponent as soon as they get anywhere remotely within arm's length. And as we know, that's not a lot of times going to result in effective in, in you making the play. And so what I do, which I didn't have a name for until like two days ago, Sean said, oh, that's the bubble. So. The last two days, I have a name for it. But prior to that, it was, you know, get get body to body with with, with the mouse. But now it's the bubble. Get inside their bubble. Uh, um, and, and a lot of people, you know, play tag. But I think tag, that's, that's the big problem with it is I don't want you lunging and reaching. And I don't want you, um, as soon as you get anywhere near your opponent, throwing yourself at them. I want you running up to them. Um, and I think that has a lot more transfer to actually making plays in football. Um, and, and my second point, uh, to kind of piggyback off of Michael about, like, asking questions and, and getting inside the athlete's head, um, <clears throat> I, I really like to watch film. I like to go to position meetings and watch film. And then when I go to practice, if I see a masterful move, uh, that's exactly what I'll do is I'll, I'll say, well, what did, you, what did you see or what, you know, um, like if a running back, you know, we had, we had a great – uh, a few games back, one of the just a, a excellent, you know, read and, and cut by our running back. And, and, you know, he told me what he saw, you know, such and such. He's he leaned, um, you know, he was on the inside shoulder of the guy that was lead blocking for me. Um, so I ran towards that inside shoulder. He leaned that way. And then I cut outside and, and you know, he took off and accelerated. And then that's exactly that in a nutshell is what we're looking for because I could have made that running back as powerful and as fast and, and, and all the above. But if he ran right up that blockers back, he gets tackled, we punt and that's that. Right. But it, it was, it was the perception and, and the movement skill that got the first down, kept the drive going, et cetera. So that in a nutshell, uh, when Michael said, ask questions that perfect. So now, for, for running backs, sometimes that is their perception is having somebody standing there in front of the their uh, their stimuli, i.e. a blocker, because a lot of times they have blockers, right? It's not always open field. They're looking at people behind other people. So I was from that question, which I never would have thought of because uh, I'm not that smart, apparently. It made me think, ah, I'll put people in front of people and then they'll have to, you know, see, see the forest through the trees, so to speak. So, I mean, that's just an example of a quick and dirty um, thought process that goes into creating, creating these drills. Because that's what it is. It's, it's creation. It's innovation. I mean, there is no, you know, right or wrong necessarily. It's, it's, it's understanding and then, and then seeing what works. 
You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast, brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, and obviously, as you all heard, my, my dudes are smart, man. Uh, they're wicked smart, but uh, I was just sitting over here nodding. I don't know if I could nod any more than I did. Um, you know, when you look at what I do or how I do it and how I structure my practice setting, I think, you know, obviously the words of the original gangster Nikolai Bernstein kind of ring true here, repetition without repetition. And, and as both of you all said, I think the biggest thing there is is constantly crafting this environment to allow problems to emerge that then allow solutions to emerge. And this constant connection between the two, as I've talked about, happens through constant constraint manipulation. And, and, you know, when Scott and I first started talking about some of this representative task and learning ideas, you know, the, the, the question always holds true because we all want to be in control of things. The thing that you're in control of is the problem. And you're in control of the problem based on constant constraint manipulation. And, and as you manipulate these constraints, you then accommodate the athlete's attunement to certain things and then see them adapt on the fly. And, and so my answer really is repetition without repetition is an umbrella. And underneath that, it really depends. And it depends on where that optimal challenge point is for not only that respective population and group of athletes, but also that individual athlete. That's a whole idea between some of these nonlinear pedagogy type of ideas with in ecological dynamics is it always depends and it's always context dependent and it's always individually dependent. And, and so when someone looks at my sessions, much like what both Michael and Scott mentioned, there's, there's constant constraint manipulation and the, the more variability we can embrace within the problem, the more solution variability that will inherently emerge. And the more I give them the keys to the car, so to say. So my athletes have to get really comfortable being uncomfortable at all times. They have to be able to be ready to be pushed into that learning zone. And when they get pushed into that learning zone, they have to realize that mistakes are going to be present. And, and we start to embrace these mistakes because, you know, everyone, as they learn to ride a bike, they fell off the damn bike. But guess what? We all still know how to ride a flipping bike because we fell off it and we attuned to the specifying information that directed our movement responses. And, and for me, you can tell I get pretty fired up about this because repetition without repetition seems pretty damn straightforward. Bernstein said it back in 67, you know, in his, in his book, Coordination and Regulation of Movements and perfect practice there, the really, we have to redefine what perfect practice means to us. Perfect practice is constant problem solving adjusting aspects of your solution in response to what the problem gives you, much of like what Scott mentioned there with his running back. And you have to put yourself as a coach or as a movement specialist in that problem and solution. And you have to exist there to try and sense and perceive much of that, which what the athlete is perceiving as well. And as you do that, that's kind of the art of being a sport movement specialist. You get to start manipulating those constraints. So you still get to be a controller. You still get to be a, a puppeteer, if you will. But now you're doing it in a facilitatory role and, and you're a facilitator rather than a coach. And I think that's really the biggest thing is I just aim to facilitate through constant constraint manipulation in a repetition without repetition fashion. So that athlete gets to go out and search their respective movement solution and get to adjust and adapt their movement solution based on what they're sensing and perceiving. And that's the true idea of affordances for action. And that's the true idea of agility in my mind, attaching oneself 
and your solutions to the respective problem that you're facing. And, and I'm piggybacking on that because I know we're kind of winding down. You can see I'm getting fired up, but um, that happens a few times. I also start to induce certain key performance uh, inhibitors into the mix probably more than other people do. I know I mentioned having mistake-filled practice and comfortable being uncomfortable, but we try to increase pressure and anxiety and, and still perform agile movement actions under fatigue and stress and things like that because that's what the sport is going to be. So I probably do that a lot more than most others will because they want their practice to look more perfect. Perfect to me uh, means the athlete is out there owning and adapting for themselves. Cool. Woo! Yeah. <laughs> uh, hey, Sorry. so we, we got, I, I would say we got, uh, we still got a few minutes left. We just got a couple minutes before we shut it down. So Sean, what, how would that play out? So take us through like a drill set, just one quick drill set on the field, like that you've been doing and how that those constraints and inhibitions will play out. Yeah. I mean, you could probably both, both Scott and Michael have seen uh, me do my work with Everson and I'll just use Everson Griffin right now is the best prime example. You know, you're talking about a guy who's been with me uh, six going on seven years, or we've been knowing each other for that period of time. And, and we've, he's been along this kind of skill acquisition evolution, just as I have. And now people are seeing some of the fruits of that labor, you know, um, all three of us chat about it uh, pretty frequently because uh, the way that I have tried to get Everson's skill to play out uh, really is dependent on what respective skill in, in the context of it. For example, I'll just use a play that happened against Tevin Coleman uh, on Sunday where, it, you know, Everson playing right defensive end for the Minnesota Vikings, uh, Tevin Coleman uh, took a sweep uh, to, to his left or Everson's right and Everson had a down block that he had to, to push off and shed and immediately went into this uh, sort of jab step power cutting type fashion where he was recognizing uh, the problem early and then adjusted his spatial and temporal constraints to meet that of the problem. And so he was trying to match his solution. And so you didn't see him. He took one hard step and then just tried to keep spacing with Coleman, knowing that Coleman is a, a smaller, uh, faster running back in the open field. So Everson understands that affordance for action because he's experienced a high amount of problem variability with us in the way we crafted that skill. And so he doesn't run at it hard because that would have given Tevin Coleman um, kind of the back door cut on him. It would have given him more degrees of freedom, if you will, more movement options. And Everson, because we've been in that exact same play over and over and over again. And when I say exact same, as Scott and Michael both have mentioned throughout, no two problems are the same, but we operate within that bandwidth. So he experienced uh, nuances of it and understood the perceptual and cognitive and movement or action uh, KPIs or key performance indicators. So he focused in on Coleman's hip. And when he saw Coleman uh, maybe start to hesitate in his uh, gait or in his acceleration pattern, he just matched his movement solution to that problem. And when he saw him accelerate harder and he saw his knee lift because he was fixated at the right specifying information, i.e. the hip and not focusing on the shoulder or the head in any feints or fakes, he was able to match uh, his speed and his temporal constraints to that of uh, the spatial and temporal constraints that were existing based on Tim and Coleman. And so, Joel, I kind of use that as an illustration because as both Scott and Michael will tell you, that's exactly what my uh, problems or my representative learning environment looks like. 
we're constantly changing places and positions and, and changing ever since starting stance. So he has to perceive and sense different aspects of the environment in the exact same way as that which what it played out. And there might be tweaks or adjustments that he's making on the fly that are implicitly driven. And then there might be other things that I'm explicitly driving, such as, you know, if he gets beat by me or one of our respective people that he's going against, I'll make the mention like, hey, where were you looking there? What did you feel there? What were you sensing? What were you thinking? So then he starts to own that movement solution as his own, whether he effed up or whether he succeeded and solved the problem that was at hand. And, and so that's my long-winded way of seeing when it came to fruition, but it basically looks like sport. It feels like sport. It acts like sport. And, and it behaves in the same way, and we get a chance to interact with it in the same way if we're the athlete in that environment as well. So just setting up constraints, manipulating, changing workspaces, um, and doing it in a really repetition without repetition fashion and allowing athletes to have to go out there and, and co-adapt their movement solutions based on what they're recognizing and perceiving. Well, awesome. Uh, well, I, I, that, that answer makes me just think of like another question I have, which would be a whole other podcast. But basically, that's integration. I mean, you like you said, sport coaching, sport coaching, strength coaching, what's the gray zone, where's the line, who does what. Um, it's such an intriguing uh, topic. But everything that you guys had mentioned today, I think there's just so many awesome things to think about. And uh, it just really has challenged me as well. I, um, obviously, like I said before, like this isn't my wheelhouse, but I love learning from the best in every area of, of this thing we would call sport performance and sports science. And so I really appreciate everything that you guys said today. Uh, and, and even in this, the small amount of sports I do have that are reactionary, it's given me a lot of awesome things to think about. And so thank you all for your time. I really appreciate it today. No, thank you guys as well, and I appreciate being able to sit on. It's been an honor, not only with you, Joel, but as well as, like I said at the onset, the two gentlemen uh, that are on the screen with me. I just want to, uh, real quick, uh, mention Cam Joss. <laughs> yep. Cam Joss. And Cam Joss. There, Cam. I, I said your name three times, four times, so I think I won the competition. <laughs> Don't let Sean talk anymore. <laughs> Yeah, thanks guys for having me on. Uh, I mean, I learned more today than you know, than you know. Going, you have a your guest on the podcast, but I learned more from Sean. I love the part Sean you said, don't water down the perception of stimulus. That's something that I got to work on. And Scott, you know, I love the cue, getting the bubble rather than tagging or lunging, getting the bubble. So I mean, those are two huge takeaways I took away today. And so I, I'm I'm just so happy to learn from you two uh, more so than try to share information. But uh, thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. That wraps up another episode. I hope you enjoyed that one as much as I did. Not only putting it together the first time, being able to ch chat with those three guys in that roundtable format, but also just going through it and making notes. And man, I, there is so much to sport. It is such an awesome thing how many components go in to what it takes to be to be amazing and to win. Uh, and it's so simple yet so complex at the same time. So I hope you enjoyed the complexities, but also some of the simple ways that these guys are putting together drills and ideas to allow that, that inner athlete and all of us to react a little better uh, within the scope of sport. And we'll be back next week with guest Christian Thibodeau. Cannot wait to get you that one. There is so much gold. 
and just an amazing episode coming your way. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, an amazing blog on all topics of sport performance, as well as probably the best web store there is that has the high-end training tech that you want and need to get the best out of your athletes. Anything from the free lap timing system, which, man, I love that thing. Uh, you got K-Box, 1080 Sprint, PowerDot, Force Plates, and pretty much anything you would need to get data, motivate your athletes, and take your training to the next level. We'll see you all next week. Have a good one.